Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Dr. Simon, and my show is called The Stories We Live By. And um, I had uh, decided not to do many more shows unless I could get some kind of a response from my listeners to tell their stories. So I told a uh, short story a couple of weeks ago asking people uh, if they would like to uh, come online, be on my show, uh, they could call uh, while I was online, uh, 646-716-7756, or send me a message uh, uh, by going on the face page of my show, or contact me at uh, www.larrysidoc.com. Um, I haven't had any response. I'm sort of uh, uh, not happy about the fact that the numbers, my rating numbers have been dropping and dropping. Uh, But I feel compelled to continue this show. Um, Maybe not the need of any listener to hear it, but it's certainly uh, my need to continue to say it. And as the years go by, and I'm further and further away from any kind of teaching position, Uh, having retired in 2005 after nearly 40 years of college teaching, I realized how important teaching was and reaching out to students. Um, As I've said a number of times on this, my show, I am now working two days a week in nursing homes um, in which I do very little talking, uh, but basically listen to people who have no one to hear them. Uh, The need is the same. The need is the same, mine or theirs. And uh, as a good therapist, and I think I'm a fairly good therapist, their need to be heard is greater than my need to be heard. So I'm going to continue my show. And and I want to talk about something uh, that uh, I thought about a lot since last week, and that is my relationship to Judaism and religion uh, and where I sit in it and where it reaches out into the larger issue of religion and politics uh, and current events. Um, I was, uh, every year uh, since I've been a child, I've been uncomfortable, not with being Jewish, but with being religious, with believing uh, that going to temple uh, had any kind of real meaning. Uh, I haven't really believed that there is a God that listens or a God that responds since I've been a fairly young child. And I'd like to talk about that uh, and and why this particular year I said to my wife, uh, yes, let's get tickets for the High Holy Days. The High Holy Days this year came very early. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, uh, was right after Labor Day. It was last uh, Thursday and Friday. 
and um, we are now in the midst of uh, the week of uh, the awe and terror, uh, which ends with uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Friday night, uh, the Kol Nidra service, and Saturday, uh, the, the uh, Yom Kippur services. Ending in, in Yiska, for me, uh, which is the prayer for the dead, which I've always said every year, uh, which I've said out of respect for my father and for all the other relatives and loved ones who have passed on, um, which is the prayer for the dead, uh, which I've always said out of respect, whether or not I've had any kind of deep uh, religious belief behind it, whether or not their souls are bound up with God. Uh, certainly in Judaism, I don't believe, uh, Judas don't believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. Uh, they talk about the soul being bound up with God, but there's never been a definition of heaven and hell. That really started with uh, uh, Dante. Uh, in this, I believe it's the 1700s. It's only a few hundred years old uh, where he described the seven layers of hell. Um, that whole mythology is relatively new. And that's not something that Jews particularly believe in, and certainly it's not something I've ever believed in, uh, that the souls of the departed uh, can see me, I can speak with them, I can go to a seance uh, or a religious service and make contact, or when I die, I will see them uh, after my death. Uh, that's something that I've had no faith in and makes no sense to me. But this year... Uh, I did go to Temple, and I want to talk about why, um, because I've sort of made a turning point as I'm now in my 73rd year. And no, this is not like so many people. They get old, and they know they're going to die in the next few years or whenever, that most of their life is behind them, and they want to cut their losses. And I've actually heard people say that. Uh, you want to cover your bets. Maybe there is a God. And so I better start believing in God and praying to God so that uh, I can get into heaven or get a good deal when I die. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, but I've never been comfortable since I've been a kid. Not with being Jewish, that I accept, and that I'm proud of. There's so much in Jewish culture and Jewish history that I can relate to. But the religious piece of it, uh, what's my relationship with God and religion? That has always been difficult for me. And the Jewish holidays, particularly between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, New Year and the Day of Atonement, have always been terribly uncomfortable for me. Um, I have spent much of my life kind of deriding religion. I don't believe in it, and I deride it. And there is a long history, intellectual history, <laughs> that I could point to that feels exactly the same way. Uh, Freud, uh, who was my mentor, not a personal mentor, but because I'm a psychologist, <clears throat> I did a lot of studying of Freud, believed that anybody who believed in the fairy tale of God had a neurosis and basically had a mental illness. And he believed that ultimately, if people grew up and became more mature, they would reject religion. Uh, Karl Marx, I've never been particularly a socialist, but I'm not antithetical to some of the aspects of socialism that Marx talked about. 
particularly as I watch a greedy, destructive capitalism uh, uh, literally begin to destroy the democracy that I think and have spoken about so many times uh, uh, as important to developing the kind of creative, personal citizenry that can keep a democracy going. Um, uh, Marx believed that uh, religion was the opiate of the masses. Again, a drug. So, like Freud, it's something very negative. In recent years, there have been a number of books, outspoken books, hostile to the idea of God and religion. And I'll name a couple of them uh, because they're all interesting. Uh, but I'm critical of, let's say, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, or Daniel Bennett, Breaking the Spell, or Christopher Hitchens' the book, God is Not Great, uh, or a fellow named Harris, I forget his name, his first name, called The End of Faith. All of these books promote a kind of an atheism, an anti-religious stance, but they're all angry. So much of the book, both these books, are derisive and angry, calling belief in religion and neurosis or uh, addiction to a drug uh, or being under the spell of something was something I could share and relate to but never comfortable with. So when I wouldn't go to temple, it wasn't because I was laughing at the people there Although, in many times, many years, I would kind of feel sorry for people who were uh, in temple uh, looking for some kind of a false something or other by going, particularly those individuals who I felt were tremendously hypocritical, who never went to temple, uh, who never went to church, uh, except to kind of cover their bets, as I spoke about a little while ago. But in the last few years, I stopped uh, being angry or, or hostile to religion uh, because as I read these other books by Dennett and Hitchens and Dawkins, there's so much anger in them. And when you're angry, there's something you really have to look at because it means that the thing you're angry at is a threat to you. And I keep thinking about how could religion be a threat to me if I really have such a profound faith uh, that it is a kind of a set of myths and fairy tales? And so this year, for the first time in many years, uh, when my wife suggested maybe we should get tickets and go to Temple, we have some dear friends uh, here in Florida who attend, uh, I said yes. And I sat through the service with fresh eyes, because I wanted to be not a hostile, defensive individual like so many atheists and intellectuals are who look at religion as merely irrationality. Uh, I wanted to look at it as a psychologist and try to understand what my feelings were, uh, why I was really comfortable sitting through the Rosh Hashanah service on Friday and then Saturday morning again, even though as I read the prayers and listen to them, I have absolutely no belief in the truth of a God uh, or that the prayers 
which are so earnest and I want to talk about, uh, and so much yearning and passion will ever be answered by a higher power. Uh, I am not, as I move into my old age, as I am in my old age, uh, one of those who becomes fearful of death and says, uh, I want to protect myself from nothingness, from the nothingness of death. I believe that when I die, there will be nothing. Uh, hopefully there will be positive memories of me, um, but uh, by my loved ones, by my children, uh, by people who may have followed my ideas in my books, and maybe even uh, people who have uh, tuned in to this particular set of shows on Blog Talk Radio and felt I have added to them, and from my patients. Um, uh, my, my current patients... Most of them probably, with any luck, will precede me uh, into uh, the unknown and the afterlife. And therefore, um, I put them last in terms of those who might uh, remember me. But my remembrance will not be mine. I don't believe I will have a consciousness, a consciousness uh, that I will exist in any way after my brain shuts down, my personality ceases to exist, my body ceases to live. So, uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, where I come from in my own religion, which has, uh, until recently, uh, caused me so much discomfort and led to me to join in with Bennett and Dawkins, Hitchens, Freud, Marx, and those who simply deride religion. Uh, and then I'll get back to uh, the service that I went to and I will uh, return to um, on, on uh, Kol Nidra evening, the first opening night of, of uh, Yom Kippur, uh, and then when I return to Shayiska for my parents, my aunts, and all those loved ones uh, who were so important to me who have passed on. Um, I was sent to Hebrew school by my parents uh, when I was eight years old. I could have been seven or eight. And this is significant. The time of my birth and my early childhood are very significant because when I was born, the Holocaust was going into full swing. Six million Jews, many, many more million others, were being destroyed by the Nazis. But from the point of view of my being raised, um, it was six million Jews who would be destroyed by the time I was five years old, and the war ended. Um, so when I was sent to Hebrew school at the age of seven or eight, uh, it was within the context of my parents' full consciousness that the Holocaust had taken place. America was not a particularly... Um, welcoming or hopeful place for Jews. There was much anti-Semitism. Uh, very, very different. The kind of attitude uh, opening up higher education and job opportunities for Jews uh, than there is now. I think today there's a tremendous sea change in what has happened. Uh, the idea that uh, Joseph Lieberman could run for vice president uh, uh, in the le two lectures, it was a two lectures ago, one lection doesn't matter. Uh, uh, the two lectures elections ago, uh, 
was was uh, something that could not be conceived of uh, when I was seven or eight years of age. Uh, my parents were terrified that what happened in Nazi Germany could happen here. Um, they were terrified. I remember when the Rosenbergs, uh, who were uh, found guilty of spying on the United States for Russia, and I don't think there's any question they did it, but they were the only spies ever put to death. Uh, the terror of my parents that this, um, this event could reawaken a, a Holocaust in the United States, and it was very real to them. Um, that was the atmosphere I grew up in. Why did they have to be Jews? Why did these spies have to be Jews? Uh, and I think that anybody who relates to this, uh, whatever religion, or for whatever uh, reason they may be persecuted and feel persecuted, uh, that they are ashamed and fearful of anybody in their grouping, whether it's race or religion or nationality, would do something that would get the whole group into trouble, uh, that would be they would be turned upon. I imagine many uh, uh, Muslims feel this way. I know as I was growing up, there were many African Americans who felt this way, uh, that any time one of their own uh, within their own tribe, within their own designated, isolated group. And I use the word tribe for all of us. Uh, for those of you who want to know my full meaning of this, go back and listen to some of my shows on uh, evolutionary psychology that I did in the last month or so. We're all tribal. And when one of our tribe gets in trouble and gets picked upon or does something uh, that is dangerous to them, it's dangerous to the entire tribe. So I went off to Hebrew school um, within that atmosphere. I wasn't fully aware of it, uh, but it's when I look back that I realize uh, the fear that my parents had uh, that we were Jewish. Now, what was also important in my upbringing, is that my parents considered themselves American. And to this day, if somebody asks me, or if we get into a discussion, am I a Jewish American or an American Jew? It is really very hard for me to answer the question. There are times where I feel I'm Jewish first and an American second, but much of the time I am an American who happens to be Jewish. Uh, America has been a remarkable country, for many minorities, particularly Jews, as I've spoken about, um, in which we become assimilated. And most of the people I know are assimilated Jews, assimilated to an American culture, an American patriotism, and an American ideal. Uh, when I worry about the future of Israel, I worry more about the, uh, uh, the uh, future of America. This is my country. Uh, Israel represents uh, a very important thing to me, uh, partly because, or mostly because, it is a country made up of Jews. It is a Jewish country. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, because part of uh, my coming of age uh, was, when I was eight, Harry Truman uh, supported Jew, uh, the, the uh, Israel 
becoming an independent country that had been called under the British Palestine. And uh, certainly, uh, you have to have very little knowledge of current events to see that the creation of Israel has not been accepted, uh, that uh, the, the uh, uh, creation of a Jewish state uh, where Arabs had been living uh, is a point of tremendous contention religiously and politically, and there is still no end of violence uh, and no end of hatred uh, to to allow some kind of a peaceful resolution of of the existence uh, of a, a Jewish state called Israel. So this, this is, is really the backdrop to my own beginning. So I was sent to Hebrew school, and my Hebrew school was an interesting place. We didn't call it a temple then, or Hebrew school. It was a shul. Uh, it was a, a place, uh, a little building uh, in the Bronx, uh, where an Orthodox rabbi and all of the early rabbis uh, that I studied with or went to uh, shul uh, on a high holy day, were orthodox. And I was taught all of the basic prayers, uh, Shemai and Maneshra, all, all of the basic prayers of a service, but none of them were ever translated. I memorized. I learned to read Hebrew, and I can to this day uh, follow. I can't really read it, but I can follow uh, the text when it is being uh uh, read from the front of the room, from the bima, by the rabbi or the cantor. Uh, but I didn't know what it meant. I had no idea what it meant. There was no attempt to translate any of this. Um, it was kind of a strange thing to do, to do all kinds of studying about uh, religion, but have no idea what was being said or the real meaning of it uh, for me as an individual. And... The time I loved the most was Thursday. I went from Monday to Thursday um, after school for an hour, an hour and a half. But Thursday, the rabbi would tell Bible stories. Uh, those were really the translations of what was going on in the Torah, the story, you know, the Old Testament. And I love those stories. Uh, but I never connected at that time the stories to the prayers that I was uh, learning to memorize wrote. Uh, I'm to this day really upset with education that involves large tracts of memorization wrote uh, in which there's no personal investment or personal meaning as to what it is that's being memorized. Thursdays I loved. He would tell the Bible stories. The Bible stories, which I'm going to talk about, one, uh, Abraham and Isaac, uh, the uh, Jews' enslavement in Egypt, and the ultimate arrival of Moses uh, and the freeing of the Jews. And when I was about eight or nine, uh, I asked the rabbi, who was not a, not a very happy individual. I don't know what his background was. He was European. So I have no doubt that he lost... Uh, his, his European identity, and I don't know how many members of family he might have lost in the Holocaust, but he was not a happy man. Uh, he did not relate well to the children. But I had said to him, Rabbi, 
Uh, in all of these stories, God speaks to people. Why doesn't God speak to people now? And I don't realize, didn't realize at the time, I was really asking a kind of important question. Uh, his response to me was he got angry, and he sort of cuffed me on the side of the head. He didn't hurt me, but he in fact said to me, that's not a question you have to ask, and you have no answer. And it was at that moment I felt very alienated from my Jewish education. Uh, I should add that on the High Holy Days, I was sent to a shul, an Orthodox shul, which was the closest to my home in the Bronx, uh, in which I didn't understand a word being said. Uh, there was no transliteration. Uh, and these were very Orthodox individuals, again, Europeans, uh, many of them, uh, immigrants and many of them uh, whose loved ones were victims of the Holocaust. My parents did not attend with me. Uh, had my father lived longer or I had a better relationship with my mother, I might have tried to find out why. But they sent me to the High Holy Days, and in a short period of time, I found it literally unbearable to go through hour after hour after hour of services. Services would go for three or four hours at a time, um, not relating to it. And the High Holy Days became an interesting time for me and many of the other assimilated American children who would go to service, go in the front door, go in the back, go out the back. And many of us would then meet at the Bronx Park in the zoo, which became a large conglomeration of kids boys and girls who would socialize. Uh, my teenage years, this was a place, uh, a real place to meet girls and hopefully end up with a date or two. Uh, and that's really what became of the High Holy Days. So I was an assimilated American. Um, I had grave questions about the reality of the religion for me and what it meant for me, and grave questions already about the point of whether God existed. The icing on the cake came really when I was 11 and my father died. My father uh, developed heart trouble when I was uh, seven or eight. He had several heart attacks, and uh, unlike what might have been done for him today with surgery and medication, um, uh, he passed away. And I won't go into... Uh, what that meant to me personally, except that uh, I realized at that moment there was a clarity that anything could happen to anybody and there was no higher power available to protect or punish or do anything. It was a, I never put it into words until many years later, but at that moment there was, for me, no notion that a God could exist. Now, when I tell this story to people, they say, see, you were wounded, and that's why you don't believe in God. No, 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 no. I never became angry that God allowed my father to die. That never occurred to me. I became aware that anything could happen to anybody, that my father died not because of a punishment, and not because of some purpose. He died because he had a bad heart. 
today, if I think about it, and I have thought about it, I think a lot of the reason he died had to do with the fact that his teeth and gums had tremendous inflammation, and he, for whatever the reason, that I don't know, and he lost his teeth by the time he was in his mid-30s. They used to call that problem pyorrhea, but now we know it's an inflammatory gum problem, and that inflammation in the body, serious inflammation, is probably the number one main reason why, given other conditions, heart attacks take place. Um, I didn't know that then, but I understood, and I understood without ever being put into words, uh, that there was no God or devil or anything that was involved, anything supernatural that was involved in, in, in um, my father's death or my life, or anyone else's life. And as I grew, I became more and more trained in the sciences, which I've talked about many times. And the hallmark of science is explanations have to be naturalistic. Uh, we don't come to conclusions based on faith, but on evidence. And if evidence demands it, we have to change our beliefs. We have to learn to live with doubt. There is nothing supernatural in any explanation in the sciences. And to this day, I am, I believe, a good scientist because that is the hallmark of my belief. <clears throat> if something happens, we have to look for the events, the antecedents that brought it about. But none of those antecedents involve a supernatural figure. No gods, no god, no demons, no fairies, no spirits, nothing of a supernatural nature. And I love supernatural stories. I love ghost stories. I love all of that stuff. But as an entertainment, not, not because of a real belief. <clears throat> so now what am I doing in temple? Uh, I'm a Jew. My identity culturally is as a Jew. And I am tired of feeling like an outsider, uh, hating the Jewish holidays because I don't know have a place for myself. So this year, when I went to temple, I listened very carefully to the rabbi. Uh, it's a reformed temple, so there's no uh, of what I experienced as a child uh, or many temples after uh, as I grew up. A kind of a uh, you're not a good enough Jew, and uh, uh, you're supposed to feel guilty. Uh, this is a very liberal and open rabbi who claims he believes in God. I don't know just what his faith is. Uh, I, I'm almost tempted to uh, join the temple and go uh, to, you know, not just services, but discussion groups. So I have a chance to ask him, what does he think God is? What is God to him? If he believes deeply in God, uh, Bennett's book, which is Breaking the Spell, uh, uh, he did some research in which he finds out, finds out that people who believe in God basically believe in a three-letter word. If you really pin them down and ask them, what is their definition of God, there's nothing they can come up with, uh, particularly if they're educated, because then it's almost impossible for them to say, well, God is a male figure uh, at a place in the heavens called, up there called heaven, because that kind of literalness 
is more and more difficult for more and more people who are in our country and our culture educated and lean towards science. Uh, but anyway, I like this man. Um, he started out his service with an interesting joke, and I'm going to tell you the joke because immediately it was a, a, something that made me comfortable and happy I was there. Uh, four individuals are sharing a cab in New York City. One is from Idaho, one is from Iowa, one is from Florida, and one is a New Yorker. Uh, and as they're driving along uh, from the airport, the man from Idaho takes out a potato and he throws it out of a car, out of a cab window. And they ask him, what do you do? He says, I come from Idaho. And we have so many potatoes that every once in a while I have a desire to just throw one away. And a couple of miles later, the man from Iowa takes out an ear of corn and throws it out the window. And again, he says, I come from Iowa. There's corn and corn and more corn. So I have a desire every once in a while to take an ear of corn and throw it away. At which point, uh, the man from Florida opens the window and throws out the New Yorker. Now, if you don't live in Florida, you may not get the joke, but that's not my problem. In any event, um, <clears throat> I sat looking at the service and the prayers with new eyes, not with a derision that I'm reading about a God that I don't believe exists and making prayers to something that I don't believe has any effect external to my own emotional uh, feelings. And as we go along in this, and I'm reading the prayers, it dawns on me for the first time to be a good psychologist and not talk about the delusions or the myths of people as a pathology or a weakness, but look at it as something that's so powerful in human existence what is it we're praying for not that i ever believe and still don't believe that there is anything to answer those prayers except from our own hard work and our own efforts but it's so clear as we go through the prayers what this great yearning is for there is a yearning for an all-knowing god someone to give us uh Good information, perfect information. What do I have to do to stay alive, be healthy, be successful? God as the all-knowing. And in those prayers, we ask an all-knowing God for, for that information. Uh, a God who is all-powerful. We recognize how weak and frail we are, how terrifying it is in the face of illness and, and war, uh, what must the people in Syria be experiencing now as Assad, this horrendous dictator, starts using poison gas uh, and murdering large numbers of men, women, and little children? Uh, I, I still can't get over uh, without, you know, going to sleep without the image of these babies looking like they're asleep lined up together, who have been killed by this monster and his poison gas. We want to be powerful enough to protect ourselves, protect our families. 
Uh, we look for the God who can be forgiving, that we can admit our sins and be really forgiven. Uh, one of the most powerful things that grew out of Judaism was the aspect of Catholicism. Uh, that was the confessional. The priest stands for God, and if you confess your sins and say you won't do them again, you can be forgiven. To me, uh, that's a concretization, a literalization that I think, again, I'll go through this again, the, the dangers that I feel in all of this. Uh, but the yearning to, when we know we have not been good to find a, a benevolent, loving figure that will forgive us. The way our parents used to forgive us for our transgressions in childhood, if we were lucky, uh, and not, like so many of my patients over the years, had parents who would be punitive and ultimately rejecting and never be forgiving or loving uh, to the child who had to learn so much of how to make his or her way in the world. The prayers for peace, a yearning for peace and not for war. Now, one of the things I learned some years ago, that in many religions there's a prayer for victory over one's enemies. In Judaism, there is none. There is none. There is no prayer for victory over one's enemies, just prayers for peace. And how much of our desire for peace uh, and our yearning for a God that will bring about peace and end to violence and end to abuse and end to victimization, uh, how much of this is answered? And of course, it's not being answered. The world is the same violent sinkhole it exists, particularly at the political and nationalistic and tribal level, that has always been except the weapons are that much worse. Not because God is turning his back on us, but because, in my view, there is nothing there except our own effort to make peace. And this in the face of, of our leaders uh, and our view of ourselves as too helpless to do anything except to pray for higher powers continues to allow us to have one war and one violent episode uh, after another. As we go through the prayers, and we get to the, one of the, the stories, the specific stories of uh, this holiday. Uh, you read the Torah, you read the Bible from beginning to end, and in the new year you start over again. Uh, Judaism is now 5,700 and you know what? I can't remember whether it's 78 years, 77 years, uh, or way, way over 5,000 years old. Uh, our American culture, Western culture, is uh, after Christ, uh, 2,000 some odd years old, 2013. Uh, in Judaism, it's after Abraham makes his covenant with God. And this is a story I've always been fascinated about. It's a wonderful story. Uh, but so much of what I think goes on wrong in religion can be found in this story. First of all, the God that is spoken about today in most religions, in Western culture, is a loving, forgiving God. 
the God of the Old Testament was not so loving and not so forgiving. This was a God that said to, to Joshua, knock down the walls of Jericho and kill every living thing within it. Man, woman, child, and animal. This is a God who when people uh, uh, transgressed in the temple uh, or didn't listen, turned them into pillars of salt or set them on fire. This was a God who smite. I love that word. He slew the sinner. We have moved in the thousands of years since that early God, uh, at least in our rhetoric, to a forgiving, loving God, um, certainly post-Christ. Uh, it, it, Jesus was a, an individual as a rabbi, a Jew, preached forgiveness and sympathy much more than punitive measures to sinners. But in the Old Testament, God calls upon Abraham to prove his loyalty to him. And what does he ask him to do? To take his beloved oldest son, Isaac, and take him to uh, a far place and put him on an altar of wood, cut his throat and set him on fire and make what they used to refer to as a burnt offering. We don't uh, offer animals anymore. And we should know that in ancient times, uh, human beings were sacrificed to the gods uh, all the time. Uh, God had a tremendous appetite, uh, or the gods had tremendous appetites for human sacrifice. And here now God asked Abraham to kill his beloved firstborn son. And Abraham is ready to do that when God sends an angel to stay his hand and says, don't slay your hand, but now I know, don't slay your son, but now I know your loyalty to me is above all else. And at this point, I have some mixed feelings. First of all, that the, the sacrifice did not take place for many who uh, 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 discuss Judaism, say this was the point at which human sacrifice ended for the first great monotheistic religion. A plus. We no longer in Western culture kill people as a sacrifice to the gods. But what still remains in the story is this notion that to believe in God requires a loyalty above family, above life, above all else. And my fear is that this still exists, and this, until it ends, is the flaw that makes religion and our prayers more than comforting, more than helping us seek a more higher level of morality, of intellectual understanding, of sympathy. But one that makes us vulnerable to the dehumanization of human beings in the name of God and religion. It is the search for perfection. It is the search for something higher than being human. 
And as long as that continues, as I have done in so many shows before, uh, we are doomed. We are on a path to continuous war of increased death, of increased uh, uh, use of powerful and ever more powerful weapons to defeat those we see who are not perfect like us, who believe in a God above all else, a God of perfection, a God of all-knowing, where we identify with that kind of an image, that kind of a fantasy, and see those who don't believe as we do, or listen to us, or obey us, as less than human, and therefore deserving of slaughter, of terrible punishment, uh, and and uh, continued uh, dehumanization and derogation. And all of this is what I've been thinking about. I'll go back to Temple. I will read the prayers again this week. Um, I will yearn with my fellow uh, uh, Temple goers, my, my Temple parishioners. I will yearn for all of the things that I think we mostly yearn for, but I will yearn in a way uh, that I believe many of the people in the room with me yearn in the same way, that we don't take this literally, that we don't put uh, the image of a law above the very life of those we love or about life in general. So there I am. Uh, more comfortable this holiday season than I've ever been before. Uh, I hate the word atheist. I hate all labels. But there I sit, comfortable in temple, with my fellow uh, parishioners, my fellow Jews, uh, because my identity and my culture makes me feel comfortable there, allows me to be comfortable. While I look at some of the prayers and see, yes, this is something I yearn for as hard as anyone else, but no. There is no all-powerful God that makes me uh, really protected or gives me supernatural knowledge or gives me anything that makes me uh, exist above being just a human being. And there is nothing in that religion that allows me to look down on somebody of another race, religion, uh, or whatever, and say, they are less than me as a human being. They have less rights than me as a human being. Uh, And therefore, I have a right, even a moral obligation, to do things to them uh, that would be not in their interest or to create pain or to create death. And so today's sermon is over. Um, I hope people will listen to this. I hope people will pick it up, uh, will relate it to their own uh, religious education, their own religious uh, affiliation, their own beliefs, whether it's a temple, a Jewish temple, or a church, or a mosque, or anything else. Um, Again, I hope that people will Uh, get back to me and tell me what their thoughts are on this, that we can discuss it. Uh, I'm not going to do another show for another week or so. Uh, I promised my friend Jim Morrison 
that I will give him an opportunity on my show to talk about the importance of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is now DSM-5. Uh, I think just the same bullshit it always is, but uh, I, I enjoy him and I care for him, and he is a believer, and I'm going to give him his voice uh, uh, for an hour or so on my show. So, that's it. Uh, I have 12 minutes left on my hour, and I feel kind of comfortable with what uh, I've said tonight. Uh, if anybody is there and wants to call in, it's 646-716-7756. If there is anybody who wants to send me a message, you can do it on my face sheet at Blog Talk Radio or at uh, LarrySydock uh, at gmail.com. LarrySydock at gmail.com and send me a message. I'll get back to you. I really will. And uh, if it seems productive and useful for both of us, I'll make you a star on my show. So, I now have to figure out why my wife's uh, TV can't get Xfinity here in Florida. What a crap company that happens to be. Uh, Or maybe it's the box, or maybe it's the line into the house. Uh, but there's stuff she wanted to watch tonight that she can't because we can't get on to uh, the on-demand programs on her set. So let me go and help her and uh, see what she's doing. It's time for me to have a cup of tea and maybe a little bit of dessert, and I'm going to say good night. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.